Now we come this evening in our studies in Romans to Romans chapter 14 and to the second half of this chapter, beginning in verse 13 in the English Standard Version. But I want to read in just a little to set the scene for any of us who may have been providentially hindered last Lord's Day evening from catching the flow of what the Apostle is teaching. So you'll find the beginning of our scripture reading on page 948 of the Pew Bible. Let us hear God's Word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then in verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, and he means the freedom of exercise of that faith, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There are some things that we, together with the Apostle Paul, realize Christians, or at least some of us, do not handle 
very well. There are some things that some Christians do not handle very well. And one of those things is differences in practice. And it's to this that the Apostle Paul has come. You remember in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he's been urging us to give ourselves unreservedly to the Lord and to have our lives transformed by the renewing of our mind. And he's been working through various spheres in which clear thinking about the gospel transforms practical living. And he's come to this section which begins in chapter 14 and extends through much of chapter 15, actually, and therefore constitutes one of the longest sections in Romans because he is deeply concerned about this principle of the unity of the fellowship of the Christian church. Now, it scarcely needs to be said here that the Apostle Paul is not so much interested as an, in an external conformity as he is in an internal unity. Indeed, one of the undergirding points that he's making here is that Christian unity in the fellowship of God's people is not actually dependent upon us agreeing about every single practice. Our unity, he says, is in Christ. We have been wooed as the bride of Jesus Christ, but we have been wooed into the bride of Jesus Christ at different times, and as is true in most romances, we come at different speeds. It would be very interesting on some other occasion to just to go around people and say, tell us about how you fell in love or fell out of love or fell into love or just decided that once you were married you could fall in love. And I think there would be not a few stories about not a few of the marriages in our church where the two individuals moved at different speeds to be convinced of the same reality. My wife and I are sworn to secrecy in this matter. <laughs> At least from now, we're sworn to secrecy. And it is actually the same in the Christian life. We don't all grasp the whole of the gospel instantaneously when we come to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to understand how the gospel works out in our lives at very different speeds. Let me give you an illustration of this. There are many of us in this congregation who would say, I was five years, ten years, fifteen years as a Christian before I really believed in the sovereignty of God. Now, it's a very interesting thing to me that many Christians who come to believe in the sovereignty of God after many years of turning their backs on it suddenly treat all other Christians as though they should instantaneously grasp what it's taken 15 years for them to grasp. So it's not just in matters of practice. This affects everything in the life of the Christian community. We grasp the gospel whether we are weak in faith or strong in faith, 
and we need to learn to care for one another as the gospel begins to work out in practical terms in our lives so that more and more we are conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the particular concern that Paul has here is in a very obvious difference, probably, I would say, quite certainly, between Christians from a Jewish background in the Roman churches and Christians from a Gentile background. That may have included some Christians from a Jewish background. As I said last Sunday, it seems likely to me that the majority of Christians in the Roman church were probably Gentile Christians, or at least it was Gentile Christians who had the strong positions in the Roman church because Jews and with them probably Jewish Christians had been exiled from Rome just a few years before the Apostle Paul wrote this letter and had only recently returned. And so he wants to deal with what can become a real flashpoint in the life of the church that could easily develop into a power struggle that would destroy the church. And it is important for us to be clear on the issue. The issue was a matter of conscience. There were some Christians in the churches in Rome, those who had been brought up in the Levitical law and the patterns that marked out Judaism in the first century, for whom eating meat of a particular kind, especially meat, obviously, that wasn't kosher meat, was was intolerable to their consciences because they'd been taught and trained and lived all their lives never to eat certain meat. And they had been brought up to regulate their calendars in a certain way. Very interesting incidental note in all this, when the Scottish divines went to the Westminster Assembly in the 17th century, and they, of course, had abolished Christmas Day in Scotland. It wasn't a holiday, actually, I think, again, until the 1950s. They abolished all these special days, and when they went to London, they were appalled that there were Christians who weren't working on Christmas Day. And it was something of that order that was taking place in the church in Rome. The weak felt it was wrong to eat meat and drink liquids under certain contexts. And yet at the same time, they felt bound to observe certain days. Others in the congregation felt they could eat and drink anything and were free to regard all days as the same. And you can see how easily the stress would begin to come. Actually, it's a very rare evangelical congregation that doesn't have members who tut-tut other members, at least behind their backs. Do you see what so-and-so is doing? So this is not altogether foreign to the Christian church in the 21st century. And Paul is dealing with this. It's not an issue of salvation. That's very clear. 
He speaks to all those in Rome as brothers in Jesus Christ. Nor is the issue simply a matter of preference. I like this, you like that. It's a matter of religious conviction. But also notice, and this is Paul's concern, these issues are secondary, but the controversy over them is in danger of becoming primary. Now, that's the problem, isn't it? That secondary issues get dragged into a primary place and therefore of the danger of splitting the church. And Paul's whole approach to this is to underline that secondary issues must never be regarded as primary conditions of fellowship. And so he's saying to the strong, welcome the weak, and not to begin putting them in their place. Just welcome them. And that, of course, is the thing that's so difficult for the person to whom Paul's addressing these remarks, because he's almost constituted to put the other person in his place, just as in response to that, the weak, those he describes as the weak, are likely to pass condemnatory judgment on the strong. Many of us, since we don't go immediately from regeneration to glorification, many of us have that inbred instinct to sort out others. And it can be very dangerous if it's released into the life of the fellowship. Paul has been giving us this wonderful counsel to welcome the weak, not to pass judgment, to honor conscientious motivation. That's a very helpful thing, isn't it? To understand, he says, that your brother is doing these things because your brother is seeking to glorify the Lord. Fix your understanding on that. And then understand that if he's doing it for the Lord, he stands or falls before the Lord, and he doesn't stand or fall before you. And now in this second section, Paul moves on to give us what I think can be summarized in terms of three resolutions. You remember how Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, made resolutions. They are excellent things to make as long as they are driven by the gospel. And he gives us here three resolutions that we need to inscribe into our heart as implications of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first of them is this. We need to learn to resolve that we will never be a stumbling block to a fellow Christian. We will never be a stumbling block to a fellow Christian. Now, what's interesting in this passage is Paul gives us a hint as to which of these two groups he himself belongs to. Do you notice that? He refers to himself as belonging to the strong. 
Chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And he's made that actually quite clear in verse 14 of chapter 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, do you grasp that principle? That is the central principle. There is nothing that is unclean in itself. And he is, of course, referring back to the statement of the Lord Jesus or to Mark's commentary on Jesus' statement that Jesus rendered all foods clean. That in the coming of Jesus, the function of clean and unclean was fulfilled in his death and consummated in his work and came to a final end and conclusion. So that if I can put it this way, you can eat anything you want. You can eat anything you want. Everything is clean. Now, there are some things you and I don't very much want to eat, but other people in other parts of the world want to eat them. The Christian is free to eat all meats. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. But, says Paul, while that is true, I recognize my brothers and my sisters who are moving at a different pace, who come from very different backgrounds from some of you, and I want to say this to you that when there are these differences, when people are moving at different speeds, it is my responsibility to resolve never to put a stumbling block in the way of a fellow Christian. That is more important, Paul is saying, than my exercise of my liberty. Actually, we already know, don't we, from the Acts of the Apostles that Christians moved at different speeds. We know that actually the apostles themselves were desperately slow. Jesus had taught that you could eat anything, but the apostles weren't eating anything, weren't they? Remember how God had to give, had to give Peter this amazing dream in order to get him to the household of Cornelius? When these, these uh, birds came down as he was there and uh, sleeping on the roof of Simon the Tanner, and uh, the voice, the heavenly voice said, Arise, kill and eat, and Peter, not on your life. I don't eat that stuff. I am a consistent Jewish believer. And so ages after the day of Pentecost that had brought in this new era in which Jew and Gentile were to be together in the gospel, Simon Peter was still resisting the implications of the gospel. So it's possible, this is really the point, it's possible to preach the sermon that was preached in Acts chapter 2 and still not to have worked through the gospel into the details of your life. And it's against that background that the Apostle Paul is very sensitive to the person whom he describes here as the weaker brother. But you remember, we noted last week, is actually 
often the Christian believer who thinks he has a very strong conscience. It's strong. Peter's conscience was strong. Listen, when God appears to you in a dream and says, get up, kill, and eat, and you say, not on my life, that's a strong conscience. But you see, the whole point was it was weak faith. It was faith that the gospel hadn't fully penetrated. But then you notice what Paul says. He says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, verse 14, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Does that mean we just go about deciding what's clean and what's unclean and we're, 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 we're the arbiters of our own decisions? No, what he's really saying is this, that if I am convinced in conscience that it's unclean, then to me it really is unclean. And he adds in verse 15, you must therefore make sure that you never cause a brother to act contrary to his or her conscience. Now, notice what we are supposed to do over the long haul. We are supposed to have our consciences fully instructed and fully liberated by the gospel. But that doesn't mean that we cause a fellow believer to stumble by acting contrary to the gospel. And that's hugely important in the life of our fellowship and any fellowship. So you see what he's saying, actually. He puts it like this, really, in verse 15. He says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Listen, this is the principle. It's really simple. Love for your brother takes precedence over any enjoyment you may have of anything you are at liberty to experience. It's that simple. There is a hierarchy. There is a precedence. And what takes supreme precedence in terms of my liberty to do this or my liberty to do that is, am I loving my brother in this way? Not only so, but you notice at the end of that uh, 15th verse, by what you eat, he says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He's really saying it's not just a principle of your love. It's a principle of being fixed on Christ's love. Jesus Christ's death for the weaker brother forbids me to do anything that potentially would ruin him spiritually. And then he goes on to say this, and this is another principle. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. What's he saying? He's saying, if I insist on my rights and flout and flaunt my liberties, then I dishonor my Lord Jesus Christ. Because in this marvelous statement, he says, the gospel is not food and drink in the stomach, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, I think it was with this verse 
that the great Martin Lloyd-Jones ceased his exposition of Romans. It was a great place to finish, uh, but he never finished his 14, 15-year-long exposition of this epistle. So says Paul, you're free in regard to diet and days and drink, but you are not free to cause your brother to stumble and to destroy his conscience. And so, the man who says, verse 18, my freedom will not be a stumbling block to my brother, is the man or woman who has his or her priorities right and pleases God in the service of Jesus Christ. Um, That's helpful, isn't it, for us? There are Christians who, when they discover their liberties, insist on their liberties. And Paul is saying, there can never be an insistence on your rights to exercise your liberty in the life of the Christian church. Because here, the liberty you enjoy from sin is a liberty you are given in order to love your brothers and sisters and become their servant because that's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did. He became our servant for our salvation. Think of what our condition would be tonight if the Lord Jesus had, as it were, stood upon His rights. And so when the gospel strikes home in a context where Christians disagree about particular practices, the gospel summons us to a Christ-like servant spirit of those we regard as weak in the liberty they enjoy in the exercise of faith. Now, I say with great sadness, I have seen the reverse of that. And one of the places I've seen the reverse of that is in the Reformed Church, where men I've seen flaunt their liberties in the face of the weak and despise the weak instead of kneeling down before the weak and saying, I love you and I want to serve you. So this is to be a standing principle in my life. I need to make this resolution as surely as Jonathan Edwards made his resolution. So long as I live by God's grace, I will never be a stumbling block to a fellow believer. Are you willing to make that resolution? Because if not, you endanger the fellowship of the church to which you belong. And that's Paul's concern. The second resolution is this. The first is never to be a stumbling block. The second is always to build up and never to trip up. Verses 19 through 21. So, he says, then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Don't, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Now, you see what he's saying. He's saying if the kingdom of God is, among other things, peace, then peace takes priority in the life of the fellowship 
And so I pursue in the life of the fellowship what makes for the peace and well-being of the fellowship and for the mutual upbuilding of the saints. And so here's another very helpful uh, insight, divinely given insight Paul is giving to us. Not only do I resolve that I will never by God's grace be a stumbling block to my brother or sister, but I resolve by God's grace that I will ever be a means of upbuilding my brother or my sister. You know, sometimes we Christians say in situations like this, but there's nothing wrong with it. But actually, that's, uh, that's like question number 10. Is there something wrong with it for the believer? The real issue in this context is this. Is it upbuilding for my brothers and sisters for whom Christ has given me gifts and existence? Will it build them up? Will it help them? And Paul makes this point here in verse 19. He makes it on several occasions in his letter to the Corinthians where he's dealing with a quite different situation, but he makes very similar points because the gospel solves different problems in the same way. Here the solvent is this, I will ever live to edify my brothers and sisters. Now, you see what that does immediately. When that is the driving perspective of my life, I've stopped thinking about myself. I've stopped thinking, I am for me, and I am for my liberties, and I am for living my life any way I please. And Jesus Christ has made me thus a servant of others. And so, as Paul says to the Corinthians, as he indicates here, Love builds up. Remember how he puts it to the Corinthians? This is so true. This is so true and so important in a congregation like ours where we value biblical teaching and biblical learning. Knowledge, he says, can puff up. Whoa, my head, I know so much. But you see, if you have a giant head and a small heart, you're suffering from a very serious illness, aren't you? And the same is true spiritually as individuals and as a fellowship. If we have great big heads stuffed with theology and impoverished hearts, narrowing of the arteries, we're in a serious condition spiritually. So Paul is saying, now, Roman Christians, I've entrusted you with Romans. He didn't entrust Romans to anybody else. Boy, imagine we were the only church to which the letter to the Romans had been written. We'd be, we'd be striding all around Columbia, going around all the churches saying, what letter did you get? We got Romans. Who got Romans? We would be like infants, wouldn't we? preening ourselves because there was so much knowledge here. But the whole point of the knowledge is that it should teach us how to love one another earnestly from the heart. Isn't that what he's been speaking to us about? 
And so he says, essentially, you can do two things with your foot, can't you? You can either trip up a fellow believer, or you can kick away from your life the stumbling block that causes him or her offense. And so I'm faced with this choice. Accommodate myself to my brother or sister's scruple and seek to build them up. Not necessarily to leave them where they were, not to get on to them, not to tut-tut them, but to pray and care and share, to pray for the ministry of the Word, that their consciences may be illumined and instructed and set free by the Word of God. Rather than ignore my brother's scruples and kick him in the teeth when he or she is already down. So, I need to ask myself a couple of questions, don't I? Would I destroy the work of God for meat? That's ungodly. Would I cause my brother to stumble spiritually? That's unnatural. And you notice that Paul says, verse 14, he says, actually, it's good to feel free in these areas. But here is an area in which you're not free. You're not free to cause a brother or sister to stumble. And that brings him, I think, to the third resolution that uh, I think is helpful for us to make, never to be a stumbling block, always to build up rather than trip up. And the third resolution is this, that we should resolve to enjoy our liberty without necessarily exercising that liberty. That's the point he's really making, isn't it, in verses 22 and 23. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so, if I lead my brother or sister into acting against their conscience, however uninstructed that conscience may be, I contribute to their spiritual failure. Now, what does that mean? It actually means this wonderful thing, that I learn that I don't need to exercise my liberties in order to enjoy them. I don't need to exercise my liberties in order to enjoy them. And the corollary, if I need to exercise my liberties in order to enjoy them, I've actually fallen back into bondage. I've lost my freedom. I'm bound to my need, but I need to exercise these liberties is a sign you've actually lost spiritual liberty, and you become a prisoner to the things you thought were your liberties. 
And so if I insist on exercising my liberties or flaunt my liberties, I amn't the man or woman I profess myself to be. I'm not at liberty. I become enslaved. The free man, Christ's free man, Christ's free woman, is the man or woman who is able to enjoy his liberty, her liberty, while submitting the exercise of it to the needs of others. And so, in a way, the question is, am I willing to go that far down? Am I willing to say, for the sake of my brother or sister, I will not eat meat if it causes my brother or sister to stumble? Paul is really saying, the privileges of our fellowship are so great, but they are also so sensitive that we must resolve never to do anything that would destroy the sweetness of our fellowship. Martin Luther caught this as eloquently as anyone has ever caught it in the opening words of one of his earliest treatises on the freedom of the Christian man when he said, the Christian is the most free lord of all and subject to none. And the Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. That's real freedom. The most free lord of all and subject to none. The most dutiful servant of his or her fellow believers and subject to everyone. So here he speaks to Christians particularly who wanted to sort other Christians out. And the real thing is that it was that deep down in their hearts, in a, in a sense, the, the issues themselves were secondary issues clearly here. But it was this driving spirit, I will sort her out, that Paul says is actually spiritual bondage and not spiritual freedom. It's Craig Wilkes' children's sermon, isn't it? It's the strong saying to the weak, now, you first, you first, you first, you first. So here's the whole chapter. Resolve to welcome your fellow believers because they belong to Christ and they are Christ's. Resolve to acknowledge that Christ alone is the judge of another. Resolve that you'll never put a stumbling block in anyone's way. Resolve that you will ever build up and never trip up. And resolve that you'll be able to enjoy all the freedoms Christ has given you, even if you're never in a position to exercise any of them, as some Christians 
have been. Or in a word, since you remember the apostle had said, love was the fulfilling of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And love the people in this church as yourself. In this, the gospel is expressed. It's a matter of our hearts, really, isn't it? Diets, days, they're incidental things. But Paul's after my heart and whether it's set on the Lord and learned 